In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Beloved in the Lord, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Where our gospel lesson begins this morning, Jesus had just finished preaching his famous Sermon on the Mount. He preached to the glory of God. He preached the salvation of man. His miraculous signs pointed to his preaching, not the other way around. His preaching didn't point to his miraculous signs. Only one sign would be given, and that is the sign of Jonah, that the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and rise again to glory. No, his signs pointed to his preaching. His preaching was the most important thing he did besides his dying and rising. That is why we preach Christ crucified. God sent his son to preach glad tidings to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted, as Isaiah foretold in chapter 61 of his gospel. We still need him to do this, to preach to us and to bind up our broken hearts, even if he must first break them. We sang last week, when silent woe thy bosom rends, his pity sees thy grief, supplies what to his glory tends, and to thine own relief. What tends to the glory of God also supplies relief to poor sinners. What a wonderful relationship between God's glory and our salvation. That God is most glorified where he helps us poor mortals. What a mystery. That God causes all the affairs and concerns of heaven to be joined for the rest of eternity to all the affairs and concerns of earth, to your concerns and to mine, to your affairs and to mine, to the most secret recesses of your personal life and to mine, that God would cause heaven's joy to become dependent on earth's happiness. What a fantastic mystery. This mystery is taught and explained by the incarnation of the Son of God. When God became man, he caused the fullness of his glory to dwell in the flesh of Mary's Son. God therefore and thereby bound forever his own glory to mankind and tied his own honor to how things would go for us on earth. The greatest glory of the almighty creator of the cosmos and ruler of heaven and earth and all nations is found today in the preaching of the gospel, which takes place among us to hear and believe. For this is how God reconciles earth to heaven, sinners to himself, and secures for paradise the bliss that was won here below, where our Savior made his home under the curse of the law. Glory to God in the highest. But you do not find God's glory in the highest heaven. Oh, it's there. His glory fills the highest heaven. No sin can enter, no sorrow or death can ruin or even begin to mar what is perfectly holy and pleasant there. His glory fills the heavens, but that is not where you will find it. You will find God's glory here on earth where God reveals peace and goodwill toward men, toward you. You need more than heaven to be filled with God's glory because it's not by setting your mind on high things that you will find it. It is by associating with the humble, as our epistle lesson teaches us in Romans 12. Jesus humbled himself unto death. He joins himself 
to the humble, even now. To set our mind on high things is to seek God by our own thoughts, which are shrouded in darkness, and to ignore God where he reveals his, his thoughts. Here below, where he humbles those he aims to exalt. Yes, you need more than for God's glory to fill the heavens. You need the heavens to declare God's glory. As Psalm 19 begins, or as our intro it from Psalm 97 says, you need the heavens to declare his righteousness so that we on earth might see his glory. Yet even then, what glory will the heavens proclaim? And what do you find here on earth? What will our natural knowledge of God's greatness reveal to you? Will it reveal to you the God you need when you are in trouble, when your sins are before you, and when death is robbing you of what you need on earth? Will your natural knowledge of God's glory reveal a righteousness for you or a righteousness against you? All the things that declare God's glory, as I taught the catechumens this week, quoting Ben Franklin, beer is proof, but for them I changed it to hot chocolate. It's proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. And it is. It's proof that God blesses and bestows good and has some concern for the sons of man. But while we see proof of God's goodness here, will we find our happiness here? Will we find our merit and worthiness to receive it from God simply by enjoying what the heavens rain down and the earth springs forth by the endless labor of man? Will we find our happiness in what even natural man is able to discover about God's love for us? Is that what heaven depends on for us to enjoy our life the way that even heathen know how? Well, it's proof that there's a God who cares. But what happiness will we find there? What enduring happiness? So many things are proof of God's glory. The snow that decorates the landscape and covers all that is unclean. The beautiful scenes you see while camping. The wild might of God's glory being declared when you're out hunting. Everything. You are impressed with it because it is God's glory being declared in some way or another. But what happiness do you find in God's glory? What peace with this God, your Lord, will you find? What righteousness is declared? What happiness? Will you find God for you? So long as you can afford these luxuries. Or will you find God against you? When by death or poverty or some awful accident... Or just the malay of a bad conscience from which you cannot rouse yourself. All these pleasures are just taken from you. The heavens can proclaim all they want. But unless the earth proclaims what God has done to atone for our sins and make peace by the blood of his son, then all that the heavens can declare will only ever condemn us. But God did not send his son to condemn us. He sent his son to save us, that all who believe in him might live forever. The glory the heavens declared came down to earth and humbled himself unto death in order that the glory you need 
the righteousness you need might be declared in the gospel that freely gives it to you, a glory that cannot be compared to our greatest suffering and a righteousness that covers all your sin. God saves us by teaching us to find his greatest glory, not where the heavens shine and prove the power of a creator, but where the sun turns black in the sky as the Son of the Most High, our Redeemer, hangs on a cross in contemptible weakness, taking away the sin of the world, bearing all God's anger at you in order to remove it forever and cast it into the deepest sea. He who has seen this has seen the Father. He who sees this humility has seen God's highest glory. That's what Jesus says. For the Father cannot be seen and his glory cannot be survived unless we see his Son in mercy and meekness, becoming for us the propitiation for our sins and revealing his Father to us, who, for the sake of his obedient Son, our brother, looks on us with grace and pity. Pity. We know that in heaven no sin can tarnish the joy that God and his angels and saints my brothers and sisters, enjoy and possess. No sin or sorrow ever can. But God beheld our grief and would, could not ruin the joy of paradise, nonetheless filled his fatherly heart with deep yearning. Pity. He saw what he loved. He saw us. We were disobedient to him. We brought everything on ourselves. We worshiped the creature instead of the creator. And our creator saw our grief. We could not come to him, so he came to us. The heavenly assumed the earthy in order to declare righteousness, in order for us to see God's glory and survive it and love it and thank him for it. We find God's glory where the gospel is preached to the poor, the gospel is preached to the poor where the poor are gathered to hear it in the midst of Jerusalem, in the midst of his people, in Zion. We find God's glory among the lowly whom Christ comes to serve and save. We find his glory among sinners who need to be forgiven of sins that they're ashamed of, that they've committed by thought, word, and deed and can't find a way to escape from. But we find God's glory revealed among sinners who give expression to their silent woe and give voice to their sorrow by rending their hearts to the Lord and pleas for mercy. Because we know the source of all our woe and all our sorrow, it is our sin, and so the lowly who are cast down by fear and dread on every hand openly confess their sins and ask God to forgive them for the sake of Jesus. And he does. It is here where we find the greatest glory of God that angels rejoice over. Not in our deep sorrow, the angels don't rejoice in how bad we can get ourselves to feel. No, the angels rejoice in repentance. In the repentance that repentance consists of more than the grief and sadness over sin. Repentance consists of more than sorrow and regret, although this is necessary. But the greater part of repentance will also be accomplished. But the greater part of repentance is that we hear and believe the absolution. Namely, that our sins are forgiven on account of what Jesus has done to bear our punishment in our place. 
This is the main thing in repentance. And no regret can ever properly be called repentance without faith that embraces forgiveness. We find among the lowly the glory of God, who himself uses lowly means to serve us and save us. We find it where Jesus continues with his congregation today, preaching glad tidings to the poor and binding up broken hearts. Silent woe rent the bosoms of all men. Most of it was just self-pity that cursed God, you know, since we didn't even know to ask for help or what to appeal to. But in pity, God saw our grief. In pity by which he blesses, he sent us help. He sent his son to preach good news to us. Jesus preached to the glory of God. What tends to God's glory supplies our relief. He didn't glorify himself. He glorified his father. He left it to his father to glorify him. He prayed before he suffered while silent woe rent his own holy bosom. Thy will be done, not mine. And so he teaches us to pray the same. God's glory is found in God's holy will, not our own. God's will was for his son to suffer. His son who prayed, thy will be done. This is how he was glorified. God's will may be for us to suffer with Christ. That's what we call a a heavy cross. He knows what is best. He is our helper. He knows how best to end whatever affliction he sends us. His glory is found in his will, not our own. Jesus taught us this. So also, our relief is found in God's holy will, not our own. If you are willing, the unclean leper begged while worshiping Jesus. If you are willing, you can make me clean. I am willing, Jesus answered. And he reached out his hand and touched what was unclean, bringing all his uncleanness into himself. Be cleansed, he said. Immediately God's will was done and this man was cleansed. This man had just heard Jesus preach. It was while he was preaching on the mountain that Jesus had taught us how to pray. We pray, hallowed be thy name. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, we are praying that God's word be taught in its truth and purity. We're praying for the preaching of the gospel. The most important thing for which Jesus came to us. We're praying for God's glory. We're asking God that his glory be secure on earth. We're praying that we may have access to this glory by retaining access to Christ who has mercy. We have access to Christ through the true and pure word of God. It isn't preached in every place. We want what Jesus has to give. The heathen, the Gentiles, must come to the rising of the light which we possess. And so we ask for this light. And now here he gives it. We ask that our lives might be lived in obedience to his word because his word gives us that life that lasts forever. We want what Jesus gives. We want to believe it and be ruled by it. We want doubts to go away and our conscience to be secure and certain. In order for us to be ruled and cared for in God's kingdom, We need him to send his Holy Spirit to convince our hearts and enable us to believe. This is what we pray for next. Thy kingdom come. 
Jesus taught this before he came down the mountain. He taught us to pray for his kingdom to come. We don't pray for his kingdom of power. The sun is already shining. The wind already blows. The rain and snow come down and the earth turns. The heavens are already declaring God's glory and the firmament is already showing his handiwork. No, we pray for his kingdom of grace that the forgiveness of sins may continually rule us. And we pray for his kingdom of glory when he will come again to rescue us from earthly misery, bring us to himself in heaven and raise all the dead, especially those who will be raised with us to glory. And he'll reveal in us forever the glory that for now is still hidden like in a seed in the gospel we hear that prepares us for what will be revealed. God's glory in the highest heaven is most certainly here on earth. It is with us by grace in order that we might be with it in glory. Next, we pray that God's will be done. This man did what Jesus preached. He did what Jesus had just told him to do. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He learned where to find God's glory in heaven. He found it here on earth, at the bottom of the mountain. The king of Syria, Ben-Hadad was his name, learned from Naaman, his beloved commander, who learned from his slave girl, who was from Israel, that there was glory on earth in Israel. This glory was sought. It was needed. So he sent Naaman to Israel, and as much as said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This is why the king of Israel, Jehoram was his name, a wicked man, thought the king of Syria was picking a fight. He was not able. So it seemed as though his inability to heal Naaman would be treated like unwillingness. If you are willing, you can. What an absurd demand. If you are unable, then I guess you're unwilling. So the king tore his clothes in dismay. Shame on this king. This heathen commander had heard there was glory in Israel, and this king didn't even know where to find it. He could only see the limitations of his own power. Even Herod knew enough to search the scriptures when the Magi came to find the baby Jesus. Even in these days, the glory of heaven was most certainly found on earth in the mouth of his holy prophet Elisha. But this king did not see it because he saw no personal need for Elisha. Naaman was met with Israel's inability. What good was all the willingness in all the world if the mighty and strong are unable? And what good is your willingness if you have no power? So where do you find God's power to help? Do you seek it in political power? Do you seek it in the expertise of world-respected experts who tell you to be scared and hide and to obey for the dearness of your life? Do you seek it where the money is? Where the people flock? Do you seek it where your desires are satisfied and pleasure is granted? Where God has forbidden you to seek it? Do you seek it where the strength of your sinful flesh is flattered and praised? 
Do not seek it here. Jehoram was a, has a will to help only for his own honor. The world has a will to help only for its own honor. You have a will that is sinful and bound. So seek it instead where God reveals his willingness. There you will find God's power to help you. To change your will into a will that glorifies God. Even when you must suffer. Naaman found it in the words of the prophet. He found it in the word of God. He found it where the kings reigned. He didn't find it where the kings reigned in splendor but where a persecuted prophet spoke the truth. And so will you. But the truth doesn't sound all that impressive. Note now Naaman's reaction to the simple command of Elisha. What good is this simple and shallow water of the Jordan compared to the deep and clean rivers of Damascus? What the heathen Gentile Naaman learned in our Old Testament lesson is what the heathen Gentile centurion confessed to Jesus. Simply speak the word. For the power to cleanse Naaman was not in the water at all, and the power to cleanse you is not found there either. Without the word of God, your baptism is simply water only. But with the word of God, it is a baptism. That is a gracious water of life and a renewing, a washing of regeneration in the Holy Ghost whom God poured on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. It is a faithful word. Simply say the word. But God does more than simply say the word. He binds his word to means and instruments that the world despises thus indicating that the glory of heaven is forever bound to the lowliness of earth. And so God's mercy in heaven is bound to you. He hides his glory from those who seek to find it in the heavens or in the strength of man or in the will of the flesh, and he reveals it to babes, to those who know where to find it on earth in the weakness of God. It is not where we are worthy, it is where he makes us worthy by forgiving us. So set your minds not on high things. Find what the highest of the highest heaven cannot contain. Find it where the Lord God who sent prophets, the Lord God who still preaches glad tidings today, find it in the lowly means of the gospel and sacraments. For here Jesus continues to bind up broken hearts. Here he continually washes you of all your sins and by returning you to the pure spring of his mercy that reveals the power and will of God to save you. Here you find it in his word. You find it where he is willing. You find it where the eternal God remains with you to reconcile you to God. To give you beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. In Jesus' name, amen.